Wealth Attraction Research, W-A-R, Reasonable is Greater Than Rational, Wealth Attraction Research, W-A-R, War, Reasonable is Greater Than Rational. You're listening to Wealth Attraction Research, Reasonable is Greater Than Rational. Presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Spreaker, Social Podcasting, Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., and Call In, Social Podcasting. Presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from. The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel, or it could be Housel, I'm not sure how his name is pronounced. Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed, and Happiness. I'm being a little bit efficient here, maybe a little bit more than usual, in that this podcast is serving a few reasons right now. I recorded one earlier, reading from the Little Book of Economics, as well as the uh, book How Money Works, both from the same publisher, Dorling Kinsley, which both feature a collaboration between many contributors and who work in the fields of economics, finance, and in academia in those fields. And earlier I had uh, switched the microphones for which apps I was using. So I have these lapel microphones that I'm using and the lapel microphone from a company called Sarah Monic that I used on Wisdom earlier came out clearer than most recordings I've done on Wisdom. However, there's no ability for me to listen back and have a conversation. It's purely for recording only. This time, I've switched. I'm, I'm using the iPhone because the Sarah Monic microphone lapel mic is for the iPhone. And so um, I was recording on Wisdom on the iPhone with the Ceremonic mic. Now I'm recording on Colin with the Ceremonic microphone, which does not allow me to have any interaction with anybody on there, um, only to record straight into the iPhone. While on Wisdom, I'm using the uh, lapel mic that I got for about eight bucks at. at um, Office Depot, and that one allows me to both listen in and uh, record. So if anybody calls in on Wisdom, I can speak with them. However, on call-in, I cannot. I can only listen there. So that's what this is. It's also an experiment, as well as a recording and a reading of a new chapter I haven't got to yet. I wasn't going to do this here, but um, I have to be efficient. So this is uh, from the book how psychology, or I'm sorry, the psychology of money, and it is, uh, uh, well, let me just see something here. I, want, I wonder about this. Uh, hey, Anthony, I see you're on call, and I invited you to speak. Can you unmic and let me see if I can hear you over there? Let's see what happens with that. How you doing? Hey, brother. I'm good. You? Turn up the volume if it's not up. Hello? No. So hey, man. I can't interact on on uh, calling on the iPhone because I don't yet have a, a microphone that also has um, an, a, an audio output. I can only input through there, so I just have to straight up. But on Wisdom, since the Android has the lapel mic um, that I can plug in some headphones so I can listen in on, on there if I were to interact with anybody. So calling for now is recording only. And we'll see what the sound comes out over there because on Wisdom it was exquisite. At least it was better quality than recording with just straight the, the mic on this uh, this headset that I'm using from J Labs. But let's uh, get into this reading. It won't be very long. From the Psychology of Money, Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed, and Happiness. This is my first time reading this chapter. Uh, so it's chapter 11. And it's reasonable is greater than rational. Aiming to be mostly reasonable 
works better than trying to be coldly rational. Hey, you're not a spreadsheet. You're a person. You're a person. A screwed up emotional person. It took me a while to figure this out, but once it clicked, I realized it's one of the most important parts of finance. With it comes something that often gets overlooked. Do not aim to be coldly rational when making financial decisions. Aim to just be pretty reasonable. Reasonable is more realistic and you have a better chance of sticking with it for the long run, which is what matters most when managing money. All right, it's time to bust out my fancy um, highlighters here and get in. I'm going to start with the pink one. So what am I highlighting here? These are the things that stick out to me. I'm hi highlighting uh, the line. It says, do not aim to be coldly rational when making financial decisions. Right? Do not aim to be coldly rational when making financial decisions. Aim to just be pretty reasonable. Reasonable is more realistic and you have a better chance of sticking with it for the long run, which is what matters most when managing money. To show what I mean, let me tell you the story of a guy who tried to cure syphilis with malaria. Julius Wagner Jorick was a 19th century psychiatrist with two unique skills. He was good at recognizing patterns and what others saw as crazy he found merely bold. His specialty was patients with severe neurosyphilis, then a fatal di then a fatal diagnosis with no known treatment. He began noticing a pattern Syphilis patients tended to recover if they had the added misfortune of having prolonged fevers from an unrelated ailment. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, I see where this is going, the whole malaria connection. All right. So, uh, Jorig, Wagner Jorig assumed this was due to a hunch that had been around for centuries, but doctors didn't understand well. Fevers play a role in helping the body fight infection. So he jumped to the logical conclusion. In the early 1900s, Wagner Jorag began injecting patients with low-end strains of typhoid, malaria, and smallpox to trigger fevers strong enough to kill off their syphilis. This was as dangerous as it sounds. Some of his patients died from the treatment. He eventually settled on a weak version of malaria since it could be effectively countered with quinine after a few days of bone-rattling fevers. After some tragic trial and error, his experiment worked. Wagner Jarreg reported that 6 in 10 syphilis patients treated with malariotherapy recovered compared to around 3 in 10 patients left alone. He won the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1927. The organization today notes, the main work that concerned Wagner Jorag throughout his working life was the endeavor to cure mental disease by inducing fever. Penicillin eventually made malaria therapy. <coughs> Excuse me. Where's that, that liquid? All right. Let's see. Penicillin eventually made malaria therapy for syphilis patients obsolete. Thank goodness. But Wagner Jorig is one of the only doctors in history who not only recognized fever's role in fighting infection, but also prescribed it as a treatment. Yeah. Fever's... <clears throat> Fevers have always been feared as they are mysterious. What is going on with the nose here? Uh, oh yeah. Fevers have always been feared as they are mysterious. Ancient Romans worshipped Febris, the goddess who protected people from fevers. 
Amulets were left at temples to placate her, hoping to stave off the next round of shivers. But Wagner Jorig was onto something. Fevers are not accidental nuisances. They do play a role in the body's road to recovery. We now have better, more scientific evidence of fever's usefulness in fighting infection. A one degree increase in body temperature has been shown to slow the replication rate of some viruses by a factor of 200. Numerous investigators have identified a better outcome among patients who displayed fever, one NIH paper writes. The Seattle Children's Hospital includes a section on its website to educate parents who may panic at the slightest rise in their child's temperature. Fevers turn on the body's immune system. They help the body fight infection. Normal fevers between 100 and 104 degrees Fahrenheit are good for sick children. But that's where the science ends and reality takes over. Fever is almost universally seen as a bad thing. They're treated with drugs like Tylenol to reduce them as quickly as they appear. By the way, I heard something about um, Tylenol and aspirin not too long ago from the, uh, cons the um, what do you call them? The, the, uh, the, oh my God, my niece, the autism conspiracy theorist. Yeah, I heard a little bit from the autism conspiracy theorist that um, Tylenol or aspirin, I think it's Tylenol, children's Tylenol that was contributing to autism. So there's another thing they're going at. First it was the vaccines, now it's, uh, now it's Tylenol. I'm not positing my opinion just yet, I don't think, but that's uh, what they think. All right, so fever is almost universally seen as a bad thing. They're treated with drugs like Tylenol to reduce them as quickly as they appear. Despite millions of years of evolution as a defense mechanism, no parent, no patient, few doctors, and certainly no drug company views fever as anything but a misfortune that should be eliminated. You know, I never thought that. I, I always had this idea that fevers cooked the, the virus, sort of, you know, the cold virus and things like that, so. Um, but yeah. These views do not match the known science. One study was blunt. Treatment of fever is common in the ICU setting and likely related to standard dogma rather than evidence-based practice. Howard Markle, director of the Center for the History of Medicine, once said of fever phobia. You know what, I should start something. I'm, yeah, I'm going to start one of these things called the, the Center for the the history of something, but it's going to be, I'm going to make it longer to sound uh, more important. It's going to be called something like the Center for the Study of the History of blah, blah, blah. Yeah. The Center for the Study of the History of, yeah. I'm not going to say what the, that last word is going to be. You just have to guess. All right. Howard Markle, director of the Center for the, the History of Medicine, once said of fever phobia, these are cultural practices that spread just as widely as the infectious diseases that are behind them. Why does this happen? If fevers are beneficial, why do we fight them so universally? A doctor's goal is not just to cure disease. It's to cure disease within the confines of what's reasonable and tolerable to the patient. Fevers can have marginal benefits in fighting infection, but they hurt. And I go to the doctor to stop hurting. I don't care about double-blind studies when I'm shivering under a blanket. If you have a pill that can make a fever stop, give it to me now. That's the author's opinion, not mine. I actually don't take any over-the-counter medications for anything. Even if I go to the doctor when I have my regular checkups and they tell me, uh, take this or that, I'm like, why don't you take it? buddy. Um, take it for me. Take two of these and don't call me uh, in two days or whenever in the morning, doctor. All right, if, if you have a pill that can make a fever stop, give it to me now. Give it to me, baby. All right, so it may be rational to want a fever if you have an infection. Oh, it may be rational to want a fever if you have an, an infection, but it's not reasonable. Hmm. 
remember, reasonable is greater than rational. But he's saying that it may be rational to want a fever if you have an infection, but it's not reasonable. That philosophy, aiming to be reasonable instead of rational, is one more people should consider when making decisions with their money. Academic finance is devoted to finding the mathematically optimal investment strategies. My own theory is that, in the real world, people do not want the mathematically optimal strategy. They want the strategy that maximizes for how well they sleep at night. Harry Markowitz won the Nobel Prize for exploring the mathematical trade-off between risk and return. He was once asked how he invested his own money and described his portfolio allocation in the 1950s when his models were first developed. I realized my grief if the stock market went way up and I wasn't in it, or if it went way down and I was completely in it. My intention was to minimize my future regret. So I split my contributions 50-50 between bonds and equities. Probably not how we sounded. Markowitz eventually changed his investment strategy, diversifying the mix. But two things here are important. One is that maximizing future regret is hard to rationalize on paper, but easy to justify in real life. A rational investor makes decisions based on numeric facts. A reasonable investor makes them in a conference room surrounded by co-workers you want to think highly of you, with a spouse you don't want to let down, or judged against the silly but realistic, realistic competitors that are your brother-in-law, your neighbor, and your own personal doubts. Investing has a social component that's often ignored when viewed through a, through a strictly financial lens. Mm. The second is that this is fine. Hmm. Jason, Zweig, Jason Zweig, who conducted the interview when Markowitz described how he invested, later reflected, My own view is that people are neither rational nor irrational. We are human. We don't like to think harder than we need to, and we have unceasing demands on our attention. Seen in that light, there's nothing surprising about the fact that the pioneer of modern portfolio theory built his initial portfolio with so little regard for his own research, nor is it surprising that he adjusted it later. Markowitz is neither rational or irrational. He is reasonable. What's often overlooked in finance is that something can be technically true, but contextually nonsense. Contextually nonsense. Hmm. What's often overlooked in finance is that something can be technically true, that's rational, but contextually nonsense, reasonable. Hmm. In, a 2008 pair, in 2008, a pair of researchers from Yale published a study arguing young savers should supercharge their retirement accounts using two-to-one margin. That's two dollars of debt for every dollar of their own money when buying stocks. It suggests investors taper that leverage as they age, which lets a saver take more risk when they're young and you can handle a magnified market roller coaster and less when they're older. Even if using leverage left you wiped out when you were young, if you use two to one margin, a 50% market drop leaves you with nothing. The researchers showed savers would still be better off in the long run as they picked themselves back up, followed the plan, and kept saving in a two-to-one leveraged account the day after being wiped out. The math works on paper. It's a rational strategy, but it's almost absurdly unreasonable. No normal person could watch 100% of their retirement account evaporate and be so unfazed that they carry on with the strategy undeterred. They'd quit, look for a different option, and perhaps sue their financial advisor. The researchers argue that when using their strategy, the expected retirement wealth is 90% higher compared to life cycle funds. It is also 100% less reasonable. Hmm. The researchers argued that when using their strategy, the expected retirement wealth is 90% higher compared to life cycle funds. 
It is also 100% less reasonable. Remember, this is about reasonable is greater than rational. <clears throat> there is, in fact, a rational reason, rational reason, rational reason, reasonable, right, rational. Okay, there is, in fact, a rational, rational reason to favor what looked like to favor what look like irrational decisions. Hmm. There is in fact a rational reason to favor what look like irrational decisions. Here's one. Let me suggest that you love your investments. This is not traditional advice. It's almost a badge of honor for investors to claim they're emotionless about their investments because it seems rational. But if lacking emotions about your strategy or the stocks you own increases the odds you'll walk away from them when they become difficult, what looks like rational thinking becomes a liability. The reasonable investors who love their technically imperfect strategies have an edge because they're more likely to stick with those strategies. And I can see that. Like there's one thing about my websites, like I'm emotionally invested in keeping them more than I am rationally because so long they weren't helping me to earn any money and I didn't know how to to do it well it just it took lots and lots of time to, to keep them to be emotionally invested to holding on to them not wanting to let them go a little bit of fear a little bit of paranoia um, about someone coming up and scooping up the names that I had registered and and then trying to have to buy it back because people do that you know they they buy your your websites hey Carnal um, how you doing? Uh, and yeah, the, and so that fear is what uh, got to me. So uh, yeah, that's that's uh, pretty incredible. All right, so let's see. And that's why I continued. And then eventually, I started getting writers who now write for me and help me boost my um, marketing by um, creating content that drives traffic, not only to the website but to my ad sharing on my podcast so all right so there are few let's see there are few financial variables more correlated to performance than commitment to a strategy during its lean years both the amount of performance and the odds of capturing it over a given period of time the historical odds of making money in u.s markets are 50 50 over one day periods 68 percent in one year periods 88% in 10-year periods, and so far, 100% in 20-year periods. Hey, that's, I'm approaching that with my websites. 20 years, got 16 and 17 years on the longest held websites that I have. So anything that keeps you in the game has a quantifiable advantage. If you view Do What You Love as a guide to a happier life, it sounds like empty fortune cookie advice. Yeah, a lot of people say that because a lot of people have heard that, right? Do what you love and the money will follow. It's one of the four things that, um, uh, of life advice that my mom gave. Three of them I know people have heard. One of them I think was unique to her. At least I haven't heard it a lot from other people, but I mean in different forms, yeah. But her first one was always everything happens for a reason. Heard that one, right? The second was uh, there's always room for improvement. I'm sure you've heard that too. The third one was uh, do what you love and the money will follow. And uh, the fourth one was more a question, which was, what do you mean can't? And, but, you know, the do what you love, money will follow thing has been a lifesaver for me. So, <clears throat> Carnal over here on Colin says, as long as you can do it well. Yeah, that's right. Carnal, I would invite you up here to speak, but um, the... The recording setup that I have now does not allow me to hear anything over on Colin right now, only on Wisdom, because I switched my microphone setup because I'm doing an experiment right now as well as recording. I have an experiment, I'm learning, and I'm recording podcasts at the same time. Efficiency. All right. So let's go. Let's continue here. The historical odds of making money in the U.S. markets are 50-50 over one-day periods, 68% in one-year periods, and 88% in 10-year periods, and so far 100% in 
in 20 year periods. Anything that keeps you in the game has a quantifiable advantage. If you view do what you love as a guide to a happier life, it sounds like empty fortune cookie advice. If you view it as the thing providing the endurance necessary to put the quantifiable odds of success in your favor, you realize it should be the most important part of any financial strategy. Where is that? Where's that pink highlighter? Oh, there it goes. Under the book. All right, so, yeah, I, I'm digging it. Oh, I, got, I, I ran through this thing so quickly I didn't highlight stuff. Maybe I didn't want to highlight stuff about the, uh, about the guy trying to cure and, uh, syphilis with malaria. Although he won a Nobel Prize in 1927 for it, didn't he? Um, well, but that's, well, let's continue here. Let's see. All right, so let's see. Uh, yeah. If you, if you view do what you love as a guide to a happier life, that's what I'm going to highlight right here. If you view do what you love as a guide to a happier life, it sounds like empty fortune cookie advice. If you view it as the thing providing the endurance necessary to put the quantifiable odds of success in your favor, you realize it should be the most important part of any financial strategy. The theme in this book which I'm very happy about. One of them, one of the things, the chapters, my favorite one was chapter seven about freedom. And uh, the other one is, uh, um, uh, well, this whole thing, the theme that's growing here is about, um, about endurance and going on. I'm gonna take this uh, call from I Know I'm Right, spelled E-Y-E, K-N-O-W-I-M-W-R-I-T-E. All right. Let's see what I Know I'm Right has to say straight quick. And people in Colin won't be able to hear it. So that's all right. Got to do this little experiment here. Hello, I Know I'm Right. Hello there. I'm doing well. How are you? I can hear you. So how would I define the difference between magical thinking and what kind of optimistic? Okay, so magical thinking and being naturally optimistic. How would I define the difference? Well, I don't know because I haven't really thought about that. So let's see. The difference between magical thinking and naturally optimistic. Well, um, I would say that magical thinking is pretty much expecting results without having anything to um, to back it up at all whereas being naturally optimistic is sort of a tendency that we all have in general we, we all we a lot of people usually tend to overestimate their chances of, of success without adding any um, and thinking about the risk involved in things so um, yeah but magical thinking is some people would say it's the same thing as like the law of attraction, but that's not true. Uh, but yeah, I do know about a little bit about natural optimism. We, most people tend to usually have natural optimism. Optimism, um, but the the difference, hmm. There, there, it sounds like right now, from how, as I'm thinking about, it, as I just said, because I'm pretty familiar with, you know, optimism. They're not too far removed. There's a very fine line between the two. Um, the natural optimism that we have, because at least as I, as I know it defined, the natural optimism that most people have is it borderlines on magical thinking because people expect to get good results um, without thinking about what could go wrong. And we do need a healthy dose of a little bit of paranoia in everything that we do to, to be able to, to ride the waves of the ups and downs in life. I can. I can hear you. All right. Well, welcome back. Welcome back. So somebody told you you were overly optimistic. 
Um, can you give any examples of what you might be overly optimistic about, or is that a is that too much to share? Oh. Well, in that case, in that case, I don't think that you're overly optimistic. Um, and the only reason why I'm saying that is because that's only one part of the equation. Because I am, if in that, if that definite, we're using the definition of what you just described in which in your business and personal life, you know that you're always going to be okay. That's, there's nothing that I can find wrong with that. I operate in that same way where I, I even expect that everything's going to be all right, but I don't expect it to be all right all the time. But in the long run, in the bigger picture, I expect that that's what's going to happen because of stick to because of persistence and consistency. And that's because also I just, I have experience with that happening. So I think that um, that's fine as long as you don't delude yourself to think that nothing's ever going to go wrong. But if you always expect that everything's going to work out in your business and in your personal life, I can only say from my personal experience and the way I personally operate, that that's totally fine because it always has worked out for me. Even though there have been obstacles both enormous and life-shattering along the way and some smaller, but, uh, but I've always come out okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I wouldn't be concerned. Most people also would normally, like the, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to somebody about something I was going to do or that I was doing, and their automatic response was, well, you know, but you got to make sure you do background checks on the people you're working with and this and this and that. And I'm thinking to myself, and I said out to him, do you think that I was born yesterday that I'm not going to do my due diligence? Well, why is that the thing that you're bringing up while I'm already in the middle of doing something? What are you doing? And I asked him, have you ever done such a thing before? Have you ever you know, in, embarked on such an endeavor? His answer is no. So my answer to him was shut the fuck up because you, that, that's the, the thing that most people come out, that comes out of their mouth when you are... Uh, wanting to do something. That's why I like to go by the, the practice that I learned, I believe, from a book called The Science of Mind by Ernest Holmes, in which he says, tell the world what you're going to do, but first show them. So only reveal your plans after something is already successfully underway while you're in it, or after you've already completed it. And that's how I operate. And Sometimes it may not sound like that to people by the way that I speak because it sounds like I might be planning something that I haven't already done, but usually, um, well, 99.999% of the time, it's something that I'm already in the middle of and I successfully see the conclusion at the end or have already finished. It's just that I speak in a way that sounds like I'm planning something. So I, so I, that's only one piece of advice I would give because people have a tendency in, in one way or another uh, God bless their souls to try to sabotage others. I don't know why that is, but people do that in so many different ways. So that kind of uh, fuckery I tend to try to avoid by not revealing things ahead of time. Yeah. Hey, uh, Amanda, how you doing? Good to see you. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sure. Carnal says, uh, 
What the fuck is magical thinking? Is that the same as fanciful daydreaming? Yeah, sort of. Getting out what you put in. Yeah, most that's how I operate. Getting out with that. As long as you, we are managing your our resources and your life flow. Experience is the best teacher. Yeah, it is a very good teacher, Connell. Yeah, I just you know as long as you continue not letting anybody. Uh, bring you down when you are attempting to do something because that seems to be the natural tendency the whole crabs in a barrel or bucket or however the saying goes um, it's unfortunately the way that's why you hear a lot of people complaining a lot of times about how their friends and family my, my friends and my family don't ever support anything I do fuck them not in a bad way but just forget about it because that's what just happens they see you as being you they don't see the evolution inside and all the work that you've done to improve yourself and be better and so it's best not to even be concerned about that. Most of the interesting thing is my income comes from strangers all the time. My income from my businesses, my passive income, and even driving for Uber comes from people I have no idea about. And, you know, so that's, that's just how it's going to be. I mean, I got people all over the world downloading my podcast by the thousands every week. And uh, none of them that I know of are any of my friends or family. So... Right, so, but but I don't cry about that, you know. Oh, yeah, definitely notice it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Of course not. Well, I would recommend this book that I'm reading right now. It's called The Psychology of Money. And it's Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed, and Happiness by Morgan Housel. Or Housel. I don't know how you pronounce his name, but I found it a couple days ago in a book called Second and Charles. I'm sure it was published in 2020, and it's one of the best books I've ever read, mostly because of uh, a lot of the confirmation bias that I'm experiencing from the book, meaning most people say that's a bad thing, but it, it's really confirming and reinforcing a lot of things that I've already learned and put into practice and that have been working for me. And, but it's, I think it's a great book overall, especially I love the, the chapter seven in this book, which is about freedom. I think that's the chapter it's on. And the first line in that chapter about freedom says this because I'm, I'm living this way and it says uh, controlling your time is the highest dividend money pays that's the subtitle of the um, the book but it says the highest form of wealth is the ability to wake up every morning and say I can do whatever I want today people want to become wealthier to make them happier happiness is a complicated subject because everyone's different but if there's a common denominator in happiness a universal fuel of joy it's that people want to control their lives the ability to do what you want when you want with who you want for as long as you want is priceless it's the highest dividend money paid so there's a lot of things like that especially in that chapter on freedom that resonate with me very much and um, yeah the psychology of money is the title of it Amanda over on oh yeah you're welcome I know I'm right. Oh no, Amanda, I'm just I'm re I'm reading about Amanda over on uh, Colin, another app that I'm broadcasting on. She just asked me a question. I think she's she asked me the question, do I have braces? Um, no, Amanda, I don't. I think she's referring to that because of the photo that I'm using as my profile photo over there. But it's just because of the color change that the um, that the photographer applied to it that makes that my teeth have like. It looks dark, but no, that's, Amanda, that's just um, whatever color filter he used in processing the photo after he took them. So. Yeah. I actually want to change my profile photo on here to Wisdom to the same one I'm calling because I like it. But, um, yeah, so anything else that uh, you want to add or, or um, ask before you step down?
sure. Well, it's nice to meet you. I know I write um, anytime. All right. Take care. Thank you for um, coming up and saying hello. And um, I am going to go ahead and say hello on Wisdom real quick since I noticed that up. So starting from the bottom, hey, Brad, a modern pilgrim. Looks like you've either been here first and stayed or uh, passed through the first before everybody else. Daryl with the dashes, Jessica, Marcianne, Lee News Debate. Topics with Mac. I know I'm right. Hello and thanks again for stopping through. Chocolate Yoda, um, Zoe, Mojo, Anthony, Tom, hey, what's up? Tony came back over here. And uh, Sin Lagos. A visual mentor focused on empowering the the next generation of artists on the techniques of visual language and immersing. Uh, you have is something wrong with your N on your keyboard because both in the word empowering, it, the where an N should be, there's a B, and then uh, when it says the next best generation, there should be an N there as well, but there's a B. Are those things close together on the QWERTY keyboard? I forget. All right, but welcome, welcome, and uh, Greg's take hello. So let me continue here. Uh, yeah, yeah. D, da, 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 da. All right, so I've just finished highlighting that line. If you do what you love as a guide to a happier life, it sounds like empty fortune cookie advice. If you view it as the thing providing the endurance necessary to put the quantifiable odds of success in your favor, you realize it should be the most important part of any financial strategy. Invest in a promising company you don't care about and you might enjoy it when everything's going well but when the tide inevitably turns you're suddenly losing money on something you're not interested in it's a double burden and the path of least resistance is to move on to something else if you're passionate about the company to begin with you love the mission the product the team the science whatever the inevitable downtimes when you're losing money or the company needs help yeah, and, and let's see what the inevitable downtimes when you're losing money or the company needs help. What the hell? Am I reading this right? Whatever. The inevitable downtimes when you're losing money or the company needs help are blunted by the fact. Oh, there should, I don't know if there should be some punctuation there, but anyway. Uh, the inevitable downtimes when you're losing money or the company needs help are blunted by the fact that at least you feel like you're part of something meaningful. Again, I got a comment on how that is very useful with my own websites and business. Hey, Peter, welcome. I wish I could bring I bring you guys up and say hello on Colin, but I switched to a different recording setup to do an experiment, and I wouldn't be able to hear you guys even if I tried. I'm just and I'm trying out this new microphone, so I appreciate you stopping by um, to listen for a little bit. But that's interesting. So he says. Uh, yeah, the inevitable downtimes when the company needs help are blunted by the fact that at least you're part of something meaningful. And again, my websites, because I've, they, they feel meaningful to me at least, right? And I'm emotionally connected to them. So regardless of what has happened, whether I've been able to write a lot for them or even write anything good, I've just stuck with it, which is why they've been online for 17 years, because um, I'm emotionally invested. And that's what he's, the point he's getting at here is that that uh, stick to that staying there is one of the things if you're emotionally invested. So he says, continues, he says, that can be the necessary motivation that prevents you from giving up and moving on. There are several other times when it's fine to be reasonable instead of rational with money. There's a well-documented home bias where people prefer to invest in companies from the country they live in while ignoring the other 95% plus of the planet. It's not rational until you consider that investing is effectively giving money to strangers. If familiarity helps you take the leap of faith required to maintain backing those strangers, it's reasonable. Day trading and picking individual stocks is not rational for most investors. The odds are heavily against your success. But they're both reasonable in small amounts if they scratch an itch hard enough to leave the rest of your more diversified investments alone. Investor Josh Brown, who advocates and mostly owns diversified funds, once explained why he also owns a smattering of individual stocks. Nah, I'm not buying individual stocks because I think I'm going to generate alpha. 
outperformance. I just love stocks, and I have ever since I was 20 years old. And it's my money. I get to do whatever. Yeah, quite reasonable. Most forecasts about where the economy and the stock market are heading next are terrible. But making forecasts is reasonable. It's hard to wake up in the morning telling yourself you have no clue what the future holds, even if it's true. Acting on investment forecast is dangerous. But I get why people try to predict what will happen next year. It's human nature. It's reasonable. Hey, uh, Maria, how are you doing? Jack Bogle, the late founder of Vanguard, spent his career on a crusade to promote low-cost low passive index investing. Many thought it interesting that his son found a career as an active high-fee hedge fund and mutual fund manager. Bogle, the man who said high-fee funds violate the humble rules of arithmetic, invested some of his own money in his son's funds. What's the explanation? We do some things for family reasons, Bogle told the Wall Street Journal. If it's not consistent, well, life isn't always consistent. Indeed, it rarely is. And that was the short chapter called Reasonable is Greater Than Rational. Aiming to be mostly reasonable works better than trying to be coldly rational. From the book, The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. Timeless lessons on wealth, greed, and happiness. It's actually a really, really good book. And so thanks to all of you who have participated with me here in this experiment with my microphones. So, if, you know, what I did earlier, I don't even know who the company is that makes this other one. They're both lapel microphones. The one that I'm using on call-in right now is made by a company called Saramonic, S-A-R-A-M-O-N-I-C. And uh, the other one, I don't know what this is called. Let me take a look here. Uh, on the Android device that I'm now using with wisdom but what happened earlier is that when i used the the iphone with the ceremonic microphone on wisdom the the recording came out perfect like better than it ever has volume a full full spectrum of um you know frequencies got the lows and the highs of my voice and everything like that while on call-in where it usually sounds good the recording later it was shite and so now I switched to see what the recording will sound like through the iPhone on call-in and what this other microphone, the Pell microphone, sounds like on Wisdom. And we'll see. It'll be very telling. So I wonder if it's just this, um, the microphone plus uh, iPhone or if it's um, the other way around. I, I don't know. We'll see when it comes out later when I listen to both of them. So. But that's it. Again, I, I, and because of that, I'm not able to hear anyone on call-in or anything that they say. Oh, see, Maria, you want to call him, but I won't be able to hear you. Well, you know what I'm going to do? Since I'm done with the main part of the talk, I'll unplug the microphone, and then we'll, then, I, then I'll also get to hear, since most of the reading was done. So unplug that, and then we'll take a, take a chat from Maria. Why didn't I think about that earlier? All right. Okay. Hello, Maria. How you doing? Hey. Hey, Ian. I, I mean, your sound quality is always pretty good, as long as you don't have craziness going on in the background. I usually but do, though. I usually I, do have craziness. Yeah, you kind of do. But that's no fault of your well, own. I mean, I could um, choose places. No, I, I just... I just wanted to say your sound quality for your vocals is always excellent, and I have no trouble following you. But I think the absolute best part of your readings is your vocal inflections, your cadence and rhythm. I, I think you could read pretty much anything, and it would sound enticing and lyrical and lilting you just have that quality well thank you Maria. i really appreciate that uh that that perspective your obs observation because i really really love reading and i have a lot of fun with it um i'm always aiming to do my best with that really yeah i'm not being pissed at 
sassy at all when I say I that. know. Um, I know you're honest. I'm the person. Yeah, you're you're awesome. You're always awesome. You you tell it like it is, whether you like something or not. You know, so I appreciate that. Yeah, I've nothing comes room, to so mind at the moment. That's but awesome. Thank you for giving me a um, chance to say that, Maria. What else have you to say? I do appreciate those comments. I see Peter is also calling in. I was on his talk earlier. Peter's always got some badass shit that he's sharing with us that I learned from. So uh, anything else, Maria? Before I, I can switch out, you can come back or I'm going to take uh, Peter. Thank you, Maria. I always appreciate it. I'll see you. Now we got Peter here. Peter. Hey, Akeem, can you hear me? Great, great. Good to hear hear you. And hey, the reason I want to call in is this. I just came across uh, another huge controversy in Philadelphia. Yes, that actually uh, related to a Harriet statue. So I, I'm going to do a room for that. I want to invite you as a special guest. Okay, great. I would love to hear your thoughts on So you, you, when you have time, just Google Harriet Tubman statue, Philadelphia. There's a whole bunch of controversy. And uh, these are two prominent uh, African-American scholars just commented about it because this happened just like before Labor Day. Uh, if you don't mind, just Google that because I want to DM you later on to set up a room. To I want to hear your thoughts. I'll definitely do that. Thank you for letting me know about that. And thanks for inviting me to uh, yeah. speak in the room. That would be awesome. I'll do it as soon as I'm, right, yeah, I'm done here. Thank you, sir. Yeah, I don't want to take up too, too much of your time. I'll just hang up a little. All right, brother. Well, I'm closing it up soon. And I definitely appreciate you. And I'm going to look up the Harriet Tubman statue controversy. So thanks for that bit of information. Thank you. I told you guys. Peter always has some 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 good nuggets, some golden nuggets. Go ahead and plug this mic in back here and see how that sound changes, if it does. And now I will just uh, once again just let you guys know that uh, this is a book called Psychology of Money, so I'll just do my little outro and I'll catch you guys later. So you've been listening to Wealth Attraction Research, W-A-R, War, Reasonable is Greater Than Rational, presented by me. Hitman, Hakeem in the morning, afternoon, and night. Hakeem Ali Bokas Alexander here on Spreaker Social Podcasting, Wisdom Social Audio Inc., and Call In Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club in association with ExercisingYourMind.com and Uniquilibrium. Thanks again for everybody over on Wisdom as well. Hello, Ali M., Lindsay Mae McKay, Roy, Greg's Take, Sin Lagos, Anthony Thomas, Tony, what's up, Mojo, Zoe, Chocolate Yoda, I Know I'm Right, thanks for coming up and saying hello, Topics with Mac, Lee News Debate, Marcy Ann, Jessica, Dara with the Dashes, and Brad, a modern pilgrim. Until next time, y'all, stay well. Thanks again, you guys, Amanda, Maria, and Peter over on Colin. I'll catch you guys sometime soon, I'm sure.